Donald Meisel, minister and moderator of these forums. It was said by one Chris Porterfield that music is the only innocent, unpunishable passion. Be that as it may, it is a passion that hurdles boundaries, that brings people together, that affords common ground, that has healing powers, and can rekindle hope in a complex and heartbreaking time. Our first guest today is a man of music from another land, Eskil Hemberg from Sweden. He is Sweden's premier choral director and composer. He is director of the Royal Swedish Opera in Stockholm. He has been conductor of the Stockholm University Chorus since 1959. He has toured Europe, the United States, and Russia with the chorus. He has composed numerous works. I was drawn to one title in particular called With God and His Friendship, a Mass about Belief and Politics for a Priest, Congregation, Mixed Choir, Trumpet, and Organ. I'd like to get acquainted with that one. Perhaps more to the point is that the American premiere of his work, St. Eric's Crown, will be presented next Sunday at Gustavus Adolphus College by the College Choir under the direction of Philip Brunel. To speak that name is to introduce our second special guest of the day, Philip Brunel, Minnesota conductor and impresario, organist and choir master at neighboring Plymouth Congregational Church, music director and founder of the Plymouth Music Series, which is entering its 20th season this year, and who has collaborated musically with Mr. Hamburg over a period of years. Mr. Hamburg will speak on the topic, music and government. Mr. Brunel will respond. And then, let's see where we go together from there. Let it be said that New Sweden 88 is the name given to the current year-long celebration of the first permanent Swedish settlement in North America 350 years ago in 1638. The landing was on what is now known as the waterfront of Wilmington, Delaware. In the special context of that celebration and Minnesota's large role in it, given the fact that some 13% of our population is Swedish, and it seems to be much more than that, we extend a very special welcome to Eskil Hemberg. Welcome, sir. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to start this lecture thanking Dr. Meisel and the Westminster Town Hall Forum for having invited me to speak for you on music and government. I might also add that the reason why I have been chosen might be related to the fact that I started studying eight years at the Royal Academy of Music in Stockholm, piano, violin, organ, voice, 
and Coraline Orchestra conducting, and then served a few years as a church musician. I then came to the Swedish radio, and I was hired as their first executive producer for choral music for seven years. I then worked at the National Institute of Concerts in Stockholm with the artistic planning for public concerts and school concerts, as well as director of foreign relations, which meant that I traveled all over the world as a representative of the Swedish music life. I've also been active as a choral director, as said earlier, of the academic choir in Stockholm for 25 years, which included three magnificent major tours here in this country for Columbia artists, but also meant tours in Europe and two memorable concert tours in the Soviet Union. I served parallel to this as the president of the Society of Swedish Composers for 13 years and has been, until most recently, the president of the Swedish Music Council, now devoting my spare time to vice presidency of the International Music Council of UNESCO in Paris. The last five years, I've specialized more in the opera field, and I served for four of these years as the general director of the Gothenburg Symphony and the Opera House Stora Theatern. I have now served one year as the general director of the Stockholm Royal Opera. I will try to cover in this lecture some aspects of the music and government relations, first in Sweden, a social democracy in West Europe, and then also some recent trends from the Soviet Union and their ongoing reforms in theater and music life after Glasnost. Since I am giving this lecture in a church, I think it is appropriate to start saying that there is only one God, but there are several goddesses, muses of the different arts, to amuse and entertain us in life. You should serve and please God, but are you being served and pleased by the goddesses? Do you communicate with other people through the arts? Or is culture and the arts only an ornament at the end of your productive day? I take it that most of my listeners produce and provide products for consumers. But for those of us who produce art for our fellow human beings, is there anyone to provide for us or is it still so that the artists and their creative work exist at the mercy of the real producers? Do we consider art disposable? Or is art one of the few remaining ways to communicate with other human beings? In Sweden, the arts are funded by the state, the province or the community in general terms. But this is not to say that it is a land of wine and honey only. The cultural policy of Sweden was decided by the parliament in a five-party legislation, anonymously that is, supporting the goals of a state cultural policy. Those goals are, among others, freedom of speech, equal access 
for all citizens to the arts, support for the preservation of old culture, support for the creativity of new works, special initiatives for distribution of the arts to minority groups such as children, old people, immigrants from other countries to Sweden, or to people living in less populated areas. A few other issues are covered by this legislation as well. But today, almost 15 years after this Bill of Cultural Policy was passed by the Parliament, one of the most underlying issues is not working so well, so well any longer. And that is the goal to fight the negative influences that commercialism might have on the arts and the access to the arts. Why is that? Well, instead of a continuous growth of support for the arts from state or public funding, government has been forced to reduce budgets or annually, with an average of about 2% a year during the last decade or so. This has been done in the name of the holy justice between the arts and other interests in the society, such as social welfare, communications, industry, etc., etc. This has led the institutions to live a little bit as prostitutes, to try to get money from elsewhere. I happen to doubt that this is a good cultural policy in a state where taxes are high in all respects. If we cannot afford to support our cultural institutions and artists in a small Western society on our taxes and cut down on something else, I think that we need a special legislation to protect the national cultural life and the arts in a consumer society. I have served, as I mentioned earlier, as the general director of the Stockholm Royal Opera for one year and the previous four years in the same position for the Gothenburg Opera. These two institutions being the two largest cultural institutions in Sweden, some of my experience from these five last years might be pertinent information to you. I will also try to touch upon some of the experience I've had in my capacity of being chairman of the Society of Swedish Composers for a long period of time, and maybe start out trying to describe what has happened during these 15 years of new Swedish cultural policy for a composer. The situation has been reasonably improved for a full-time professional composer. We have approximately 130 members who write so-called serious music in the Society of Swedish Composers, many of whom are able to live only part-time from their composing, but also now a younger generation of well-educated composers who can make their living devoting all their time and energy to the creation of new works. This is possible through three main means, state grants, commissions, and performing rights. But uh, the general understanding for such a young composer is that you have to stay busy. State grants are given away by the State Artists Council, and this council is working in different sections for music, for the visual arts, for literature, etc. 
Grants are given by composers, musicians, authors, and other creators on the Council's panel to fellow composers of serious and light music, to concert, jazz, and rock musicians, but also to painters, sculptors, photographers, opera singers, ballet dancers, yes, even to chess players. Those grants might be for one, two, or five-year terms and provide for some part of the living of composer. Now, the commissions are based on a scale of fees for different kind of works. A full night opera, a symphony, a string quartet or a choral piece will all be paid differently according to this signed labor market agreement between the Society of Swedish Composers and the National Association of Theatres and State Symphonies, also including radio and television companies. Thus, an opera might be paid with 120,000 crowns per year for a contracted two-year term and give the composer a salary of $40,000 after two years' work on that opera score. On top of this, the composers might earn some money from performing rights, as I said earlier, based on the income from using his works publicly in concerts, in radio and television, and from the revenues of ticket sales in the opera houses. And if you are busy, as I said earlier, it might be added that it helps being good as well. Then you might be able to devote yourself full-time as a creative person, as a composer, and in Sweden, we do have more of them now than just 15 years back. The Royal Opera is receiving its funding 100% from the owner, the state. The Stockholm Opera has a staff of 700 full-time employees, 50 soloists, 130 orchestra members, 70 dancers, 75 choristers, and 10 supernumeraries, the rest being administration and some 250 technical department, ranking from blacksmiths to costume makers, but also, of course, conductors, producers, etc. In the year 1986-87, there were given some 280 performances on five different stages. The state funding amounted to 156 million crowns and the revenue from ticket sales to 18 million. Thus the total income was 175 million, that is about 29 million dollars, but the expenses were 185 million, which meant a deficit of 10 million, or almost 2 million dollars, which had to be covered from previously reserved funds. Since those 280 performances were attended by 225,000 people, the average cost for producing opera and ballet on our national stage amounted to more than 600 crowns or $100 per seat. The price of the most expensive ticket, though, was 150 crowns. The most inexpensive ticket, 20 crowns, that is from roughly $25 down to $3. This again reflects the state 
cultural policy that the arts should be accessible to all citizens with regard to financial means available in a normal household. It could be argued whether or not it would be better to charge the attendants to the Stockholm Royal Opera with the real cost of a seat, 600 crowns, and thus have no deficit. But if this policy would be carried out, I fear it would mean that the audience would be only business people on a visit to Stockholm, rather than a husband and a wife or even children from an ordinary household. I do consider children very important in building our future cultural policy. We have to devote more time and energy to producing opera and ballet for children, for a younger audience. In Gothenburg, I was able to start a special stage to accommodate the needs for a young audience. I do think that the sports have found a better way of being attractive for children in communicating their training programs, their matches, their existence and availability. The big cultural institutions often store all their bad consciousnesses in one smaller stage. The development of the arts, the building of a new audience, etc., etc. But I think that each such goal within a theatre policy must have its own stage to accommodate different and most legitimate interests. It is a great thing to be able to commission works from writers, composers, choreographers to further the art of opera or ballet. But the only possible way to be successful in doing so is to have a separate stage for these often called experimental productions, but let us name them chamber productions, because all artists have to try out their means of expression on a small stage and in a smaller context before being able to be a great success on a large stage. In the same way, you need a stage for creating a new audience. They have to have access to opera and ballet all year round and not only at Christmas or the like, as special entertainment for the kids. There is not a more receptive and appreciative audience for established opera singers and dancers than this young generation. In general, they do not need long introductions or explanations for understanding. They will intuitively listen and use their imagination to understand and communicate with other human beings through the arts. In Gothenburg, after five years, the audience increased in total with 25%, all of them coming to the children's stage only. I would also like to communicate some special insights in changing of the cultural policies of the Soviet Union that I have received from colleagues in the USSR on a most recent visit to Moscow only two weeks ago. This was not my first visit. I have been there about ten times before as conductor, as composer, and as an official Swedish representative. The most interesting visit was last year as a delegate to the famous Glasnost conference in February, together with authors, filmmakers, movie stars, etc. In my committee meeting were, for instance, Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal, Max Frisch and Yevgeny Yevtushenko, Gregory Peck and Claudia Cardinale, 
to mention a few. But at this most recent visit, we were some 30 Scandinavian theatre directors, and we were told a few issues that have been changed in the relationship between government and music, or music theatre, before and after Glasnost and Perestroika. There has been founded a new association of all creative artists at the theatres, based on the very existence of theatre societies in each of the 15 republics. The membership of these societies created a new association. They elected delegates for a constituents meeting in which Gorbachev himself took part heading the Politburo. This meeting elected a board and the board of secretariat for five years. The board itself might be re-elected between the Congress periods, which also are five years. Before Perestroika, the theatre societies in each of the republics couldn't manage the right of the theatres to plan their own repertoire. They were also not successful in solving financial problems. The aim of this new association then became to give the theatres autonomy in the artistic and creative work and a new financial basis for their work. Judging from comments abroad, the situation was thought to be rather good before. There were even Western observers who spoke with envy about the Soviet system with its secure position within the state. The established repertoire, the contracted ensemble, and the secure state support were regarded enviously. For instance, the artistic theatre in Moscow had increased its ensemble to 190 actors, all contracted full-time for life, but they had to be kept busy on stage. The province theatres, on the other hand, had to play too large a number of performances in their big houses and with their big ensembles. The theatre in Vilnius, Lithuania, made in 1986 more than 40 productions in order to keep all their actors busy. The state gave substantial support and this led sometimes so that money was allocated more and more to the worst quality theatres. One could say the worse the theatre, the more state money to keep it alive. Profound reforms, both artistically and financially, seemed impossible to, to avoid. The new policies were receptive to such demands. The first important task became to free the theatres from state dependence. Last month, that is March 1988, the government took an important decision that will provide the theatres with great freedom for the next five years. This decision is founded on the fact that the association made deliberations on the average cost for a theatre ticket. I'm now referring to rubles, and you might think of one ruble as one dollar. This average cost for a theatre ticket is right now three rubles in the Soviet Union. The price of the ticket is normally only half of this sum, 1.5 rubles. Thus, the state subsidizes each attendance with 1.5 rubles. This knowledge has now been turned into a new policy. From now on, theatres will receive 
1.5 rubles from the state for each ticket they sell. The more visitors, the larger support. Uh, Thus, the theatres are also forced to produce plays with a good quality in order to interest an audience. The theatres will then be allowed to keep the surplus they can make to build new theatres or resort homes for actors, etc. Anything they want. So-called artificial ensembles and repertoire theatres will have a worse time. The rules of the ticket prices are kept very strictly. Right now, as I said, the maximum is three rubles. It might be allowed to raise another ruble, not more. It will also, according to this new state policy, be possible to contract freelance actors for a given production. Some stages might have to function as a platform for touring companies, especially in smaller cities. The idea is decentralization, and each city might decide themselves if they want to keep the old big ensemble or split them up into smaller groups. The next step will be to raise the quality of an ensemble. An examination of all actors is being planned. This might lead to the possible dismissal of bad actors. Thus, the artistic collective can be said to run its own fate. The state's possibility to govern and select the place to be performed has been exempted. <coughs> The issue is a maximum of democracy within the theatre and a maximum of autonomy. There are a few remaining problems, however. In the theatres, artistic councils are now being organised by secret balloting. Those councils decide in practice the policy of a theatre. The initiative to these reforms of 1986 were originally taken by some of the chief producers. The democracy, however, has led to a majority of the actors not voting for people who want to dismiss bad actors. According to the secretaries in the new association, artistic mediocrity is often elected as a member of a council, and thus conflicts with producers are frequent. Both of those secretaries underline, however, that artistic problems have to be handled by artistic management. The theatres have to pay a price for their democratisation. Within the association, one does not longer fear the dictatorship of the state, but the dictatorship of the audience. The association is prepared to give support to such theatres who have more avant-garde repertoire. They may receive grants or commissions. Such a support, uh, support might even come from the Soviet state and the republics. In summarizing, I think what is going on in the Soviet Union right now is very interesting. It is a trial for democracy, but it is also a deep insight that money alone does not provide for good quality in the arts. In Sweden, this mediocrity in union thinking is as pertinent as in the Soviet system, and I do think that it needs some artistic courage to put a, together a good repertoire in any theatre in the world. So, what is needed from us being voters in open democracies is that we go to ourselves and argue whether or not the arts can offer something, whether or not it is disposable, and then when we become the state, underline 
that this is one of the few remaining roads of communication in a world filled sometimes with too much goods for us as consumers, sometimes with too much war, when it should be our task to serve God and be pleased by the goddesses. Thank you very much. Twenty-five years that I have known Eskel Hamburg, ever since 1963, when I was the pianist for a chorus that uh, made a tour in Europe, and we ended up in Stockholm, where this young fellow, Eskel Hamburg, was the conductor of the academic choir, and we shared a concert together and began a long, long friendship. Certainly, the contrasts between the situations that Mr. Hamburg has described in Sweden and in the Soviet Union and that of the United States are enormous. They're enormous for many reasons, and some of them are perhaps very obvious and others perhaps not so obvious. Those of our ancestors who settled here in the United States several centuries ago were, of course, concerned with nurturing the body. Their concerns for the soul were going to have to come sometime later. Because of it, and over the centuries, this concern for nurturing the soul through the arts, through other means, was something that took a great deal of time to develop. It also took a long time to develop in the United States because of the long-term suspicion that many, many people have had in the United States about government and about the interference of government in the art forms. Because of that, the United States has long had the position in terms of the arts that we go it alone. That we do not want the federal government or the state government to put any money in because if they do, then they will tell us what can be said and what can be written and what can be played and what kind of music can be written. Gradually, there has been a realization that private support for the arts was not sufficient and that what would eventually happen would be that this kind of private support would only favor those who were well-to-do and could afford to go at all. The centuries-old tradition in Europe of support for the arts had filtered down from the support of royalty to the support for government. And that particular European idea, of course, led to the guarantee of access for all. It was the English composer Frederick Delius who, in desiring to become a composer himself and devote his life to that, wrote, don't ever dream of becoming a professional composer unless you have private means. The idea, certainly, of spending your life actually in composition is something that seemed to an American composer absolutely out of the question. It has only been in our generation, and in 1965, to be exact, that the National Endowment for the Arts was established by President Johnson. That was the first year that any federal money was given to the arts in this country. 
Even at that time, it was considered a frill. Representative Gross of Iowa was uh, speaking on the floor of the House that year, uh, comparing uh, the fact that the arts meant that we would be funding belly dancers only, and what difference was that between a belly dancer and a bale of hay? To which another representative got up and said, perhaps the reason we need to fund the arts is that the representative from Iowa doesn't know the difference. <laughs> and so today, support is there for arts organizations in the United States, but it is extremely small. On the average, and I say on the average because there are lesser or greater to anything when you're making these kinds of, of generalizations, on the average, an arts organization in the United States can count on at most two to three percent of their income coming from the federal government. And if you add that to the state money you might get, the most you could expect would be 5%. Now, 5% was the amount that Mr. Hamburg was missing from his Swedish budget. I don't know if he'd like to look for 95%. That's what we are doing over here. And that's basically what the arts must do in this country. Hope that at most they can get 5% from government and then run like crazy to find the other 95% to keep afloat. Of course, there are good and bad sides to any situation. In the case of the American system, certainly some of the good aspects of our system involve the fact that this method allows a certain survival of the fittest. You really do have to continue to try to prove yourself in order to get funding. You need to prove your effectiveness. It helps you to keep in contact with your, with your supporters. It builds community involvement. You don't end up taking the support for granted. But there are bad sides as well. The amount of time that you must spend on fundraising rather than on the artistic product. The kind of ad campaign gimmicks you must go through in order to get support. The concern with repertoire, being careful that if you're going to try to get private support you don't want to offend someone. The enormous competition for the money, not only from other arts organizations but from social welfare and the like and the unpredictability of that support. Antonin Dvorak, in the last century, when he was visiting the United States, said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that art, as such, does not pay, and that the art has, that has to pay its own way is apt to become vitiated and cheap. Another factor that we have in the arts is, of course, that of permanence which Mr. Hamburg related to. Is permanence a good or a bad thing? In Sweden, after three years, you are hired for life. The chance of dismissal in Sweden is nil. And as one who has conducted in Sweden, I can tell you that the, uh, the flexibility of allowing people to be absent from 
rehearsals borders from what we are used to in the United States on scandalous. You, you virtually can be absent year-round if you keep getting doctor's notes. And it's quite an incredible situation coming from working in the United States. Of course, in the United States there is permanence, but that's mainly with our symphony orchestras and a strong union. For everyone else, it's really on an individual basis, and you hope that you will be able to find the next job because you're going to need it to survive. Again, there are good and bad aspects to both. And yet, one would hope, and I would hope, that there are, in both of these systems, there are some ideals that can be found in between them. Both systems have a, a great deal to offer. Both systems have certain wonderful points about them. I would love to hope that we could look forward to a society here in the United States that eventually would see greater government support. Not total, but more to take off some of those pressures that those of us who are in the performing arts face every day when it comes to concerts, when it comes to where we have to spend our time and how we can spend it. For those of us here who are involved in the arts, of course, the underlying fact is that the arts for us, and for me specifically, music, are that intangible thing that drives us forward, that makes us want to share, knowing that this soul that we want to nurture, that Eskel Hamburg spoke about, that we all know is so important to just the quality of life that we have in our community, what we are looking for in our country, is vitally important. More important now, perhaps, than it has been, but something that we need to continually strive for. And for me, I take consolation and I take great pride and, and joy in the words that John Dryden wrote more than 300 years ago when he said in his Ode to St. Cecilia, So when the last and dreadful hour this crumbling pageant shall devour, the trumpet shall be heard on high, the dead shall live, the living die, and music shall untune the sky. Thank you. Mr. Brunel informed me uh, before we came in here that he is going to handle all the easy questions and that Mr. Hamburg will handle all the difficult questions. Absolutely. I don't know whether Mr. Hamburg agreed to that arrangement or not. Absolutely. Uh, while we're waiting for questions to come forward, I, I would uh, like the privilege of uh, asking Mr. Hamburg to comment uh, a bit on the history uh, and the dynamic of this piece that you're going to give the premiere performance of Sunday at, at Gustavus Adolphus, St. Eric's Crown. Would you kind of give us some of the background uh, uh, and the history of that and, and what, what we have to look forward to? Thank you very much. Yes, um, St. Eric's Crown is based on some central piece of Swedish history. Uh, king Eric was king around 1050 and he was the first one to be able to, to unite 
a piece of land that is now known as Svea land. And um, he, having done so, he thought it was time to deal with Christianity and he decided to go on a crusade to Finland to christen the Finns. And he had a conflict to face between uh, the papal church and the people's church that he would like to see happen in his country. And as you might know, still today, the Swedish king is the sovereign of the Swedish state church. And this was exactly the idea that Eric had, that he would be the sovereign of the church. Now, this was not easy in a time when Bernard of Clairvaux was the most fashionable name in Catholicism and uh, he had his abbots around who represented him uh, and there was uh, a great deal of conflict. They went on this crusade to Finland and um, Eric did not like the idea of fighting human souls with sword in hand. He would rather go for the chalice. He returns it is a not too happy situation, having been forced to kill so many people. And he lives with a bad conscience, and he also is accused by his wife, Queen Christina, not being uh, loved, uh, to share his love between her and God. And she thinks that she should have more of his love than God. And then, at the end uh, of the story, Prince Magnus of Denmark is coming to uh, fight with him and he is celebrating the Mass in the Cathedral of Uppsala. And right outside the church, he is cut down and killed. And according to the legend, where he dies, there springs a well up from the earth. Uh, and thus, it is believed he was a holy man, and he's proclaimed since many hundred years the national saint of Sweden, and is buried behind the high altar in the cathedral of Uppsala. And this Bishop Henrik, who is also partaking in the play, is the national saint of Finland, of course. The work was originally commissioned to be performed at the Helsinki Festival in 1979. Okay. Thank you very much. A question from the floor. Perhaps both of you would respond. We are imbued with the myth of the starving artist. Perhaps we implicitly assume that starving makes the artist more creative. Would you comment? <laughs> yeah, I think it is a general understanding that a hungry wolf is hunting better. <laughs> but um, I don't think it hurts to be able to uh, have bread and butter every day. Uh, it is a full-time work to be a composer, a very heavy and very lonesome work. And uh, I think that uh, if we have to turn our needs back to the days of Mozart, for instance, if you've seen the movie Amadeus, then you will realize very much how bad a life for such a hungry composer could be. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Brunel, would you respond? 
I think that uh, what Eskel has said is, is absolutely true. I think there are other ways that the composer can be challenged than by simply starving them. <laughs> uh, and certainly one of the things that composers love is that when they are asked to write something, uh, they are given some kind of parameters to work within. That kind of challenge is the kind of challenge that stimulates the mind. And if you've got something in the stomach, the mind operates a lot better. <laughs> Another question from the floor to you, Mr. Hamburg. I gather that one purpose of the Swedish government in supporting music is to perpetuate a distinctive Swedish culture. How would you describe the distinctive aspects of Swedish culture? Yes, there is a very famous word from a Swedish 19th century author, only in Sweden there are Swedish raspberries. <coughs> now, I would say that Sweden being the largest country in Scandinavia in the, among the five Nordic countries, being a little bit of a big brother there, feels that it can be more international, feels that it can be op more open-minded. You will often find Swedes in official positions in the United Nations or elsewhere. Whereas the, the smaller countries like Finland or Norway, they have to fight to establish their own national identity and they do it better than we do it. I think there is uh, a little bit of a problem there. Uh, if you want to be international, you have to have something national to contribute with. Uh, our language is a very small language, but, so we have to learn other foreign languages in order to communicate. But there is one strong thing about music and visual arts, and that is that it doesn't need any language. It does only need an open mind. And in this respect, if we have something, may it be Swedish raspberries or not, then we might contribute in the international way. <laughs> Thank you. I would welcome both of you responding to this question, possibly uh, you, Mr. Brunel, first. What effect do the arts actually have in building bridges between countries and cultures in the world? Is music truly a universal language? Well, if music is not an international language and we are limited only to the composers within our boundary, uh, we're going to have an awfully short-sighted view of what is going on. This means you can start by turning in your Bach cantata records, your Mozart symphonies, and your Beethoven Ninth. Uh, music is indeed a wonderful and international system of communication. My only regret is that it isn't even more of one than it already is. It amazes me in this day in which news travels so quickly from country to country and we can find out about one enormous accident within minutes that even though that is true and we do have this international communication, it is amazing yet if we were to walk in the audience today and say, um, could you please name for me other than Esko Hamburg, 
could you please name for me five Swedish composers living today uh, and see what you come up with? Now, I would be very glad to say that it is the same in reverse, that except for perhaps a, a media sort of name in Sweden, like, say, Leonard Bernstein, the same thing would hold true if you were to ask an audience to name a whole group of American composers. The point is that we have this international language. It has been wonderful as far as it has, but there's a lot more that can be done. And this was one of the roles that uh, when Dr. Meisel introduced Esko Hemberg that he mentioned, because Esko did travel for many years trying to promote uh, the idea of composers and what they can do. I am just hoping that in the years ahead, as we advance our communications network, we will also advance our music network so that we can indeed find out some of the incredible delights because all it will do is strengthen bonds between countries and between people as we begin to realize how much we have in common rather than letting language stand in the way and saying we don't have anything in common. Thank you. Mr. Hemberg, would you like to say any more about that, the spirit of all that, um, the place of music in, in crossing boundaries and building bridges? I, I know you've already addressed that in part. Well, there, there is little, little more to be added. I think that music is such a uh, force for the uh, human soul that it helps us uh, surviving. I think music is now used very much as therapy for sick people. And this is in those cases where uh, drugs and other things cannot work any longer. You can reach people with music. This means that if we use the good music, we might reach each other very well. There is, of course, a danger of, I would say, music pollution, <laughs> that we listen to too much of bad stuff. But if we use it the right way, and if we are open-minded, I think it will be a very good vehicle for human understanding. Thank you. To switch to an almost uh, irreverent uh, arena, it says, on a less serious note, is it true that you acquired your wonderful accent here in Minneapolis? <laughs> on to the next question. <laughs> what are the chances for an independent artist, not an employee of an opera company, for example, to make music? Are there professional opportunities outside of state-supported activities? Yes, certainly. As I was mentioning earlier, um, it's on, not only the state who contributes on a, on a sort of so-called federal way. Uh, it's also the provinces and the cities themselves. Uh, but there is a large freelance uh, field to work in as a musician in Sweden. And we are, if you are working in one way, we are working in the same way because of this fast communication. Uh, we are not that very much separate from each other. Uh, we have been forced to, to work more, more with sponsors and sponsorship. Uh, although we are very bad at it. So one reason for us to go to US, United States now is to learn 
how does one work with sponsors because we are not aware of how to work with them. But there certainly are many opportunities outside the state subsidy uh, to be active as an artist or as a composer. Yes. Thank you. Question that's come in from the radio audience. Do you believe it is good for corporations, and I think you both could respond, to support the arts as a marketing technique? Bill, would you like to begin on that one? Well, of course, many corporations have uh, supported the arts in this way, and I think it can be done uh, in ways that are wonderful and healthy. I think it can be done in ways that are trite as well. I think it has a lot to do in the corporation with who's in charge of their PR department uh, and how they view the, uh, the role of music. If they view it in a certain elevating sense, in a sense of nurturing, it's one thing if a corporation views it as simply a means of selling uh, on a very uh, lower level, on a means of just selling you know, thousands and millions more of their product, it takes on a totally different kind of meaning. But it can have an ennobling effect. And uh, I think uh, so much of it has to do with indeed just the attitude and the ideal by which it is begun and worked with. Do, do you have that as an issue? Or is there corporate sponsorship of some of your music, uh, artistic yes, life? Yes, there, there is. And, and I have happened to be president of a company in Gothenburg that received such corporate sponsorship from uh, our, one of our largest corporations, the Volvo Corporation. And this uh, was given to uh, uh, try to uh, make our symphony a larger and a better symphony in Gothenburg. And it was a very positive uh, support. Um, the Swedish tradition in this field, also in the government tradition, is that uh, the money is there and the decision that you get the money is there, but we do not inflict or conflict with your ideas. Uh, so government would give us money for state support and they will not try to discuss repertoire or artists or anything like else like that and the same goes I think in a very great respect for these corporate uh, support that we are receiving uh, the money is there in a small portion uh, but uh, those companies have not been trying to to be in conflict with the artistic interests all right. Another question to you, sir. Does the Swedish state support of the arts result, do you think, in a greater percentage of the Swedish population participating in the arts uh, or hearing or seeing artistic performance? Yes, most certainly so. Uh, we have statistics that prove that there are f more people who go to theaters and concerts than to all these sports in total in Sweden. And that is amazing uh, for a rather small country that that is the fact. We draw much more people to the arts than we do to the sports. And there are a few champions to draw, like Björn Borg and others you might know of. And uh, still, the arts are better off. I think this is 
also due to the fact that one of the goals for this cultural policy has been to work with the distribution of the arts among elder people, among children, among uh, immigrants. We do have very many immigrants from all over the world, mostly political refugees, and we think it is their right to be able to have their culture within their new homeland. And this uh, is a very positive issue that the state has been working very much with in order to be able to do so. Uh, they have had to spend some money and that has given some very good results. Thank you. Mr. Hemberg, uh, we're aware that you were in town at the same time as your King Carl and Queen Sylvia and uh, did some special things uh, for the public while they were here. They have left town, but you remained uh, to share this hour with us, and uh, we're delighted that you have done so.